Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org.nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 6 of the Book of Daniel. I mentioned in previous lessons of this book that the goal of Tanakh is not to be a historical record, but the goal is to comment on Jewish history and world history and see it through the prism of God, how God interacts with it, how God feels about it. And of course, the prism is the prophet or the inspired sage who author the books. More specifically, I mentioned that this book, Daniel, serves as an educational manual uh, for how a Jew needs to live in exile with all of its potentials and all of its potential dangers. So we should ask, what distinguishes this chapter? What new lesson do we have than the one that we saw in chapter 3? Here, Daniel is cast into the lion's pit. There, Daniel's three companions, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, are cast into the furnace. In fact, the author draws explicit connections between the two chapters, between the two stories, by using many of the same distinctive words which only show up in these two chapters. For instance, the word shalu for error, and achalu kartsohi, meaning uh, lush and haru, or literally eating of one's flesh. Um, and they're, of course, shared motifs, the jealousy, the saving angel, the king who recognizes God in the end. However, to paraphrase um, the great Bible scholar Shoshana bin Nun, who was also the mother of Raviol bin Nun, the difference is... The difference in parallel, that is, it's not the similarities in parallel biblical passages which are important. That is, once once the author has drawn the parallels and connected two separate biblical stories, that's all well and good. But then the differences become the most significant thing because the author is then uh, uh, showing them up. It's the pieces that don't match which are the most interesting. So there are indeed differences between these two stories uh, Obviously, uh, other than their obvious, uh, uh, obviously different political settings with Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 and, and uh, Darius in charge of the Persian Median Empire here um, and we'll see them as we go along. Now, as far as Darius the Mede goes, we really have no external historical record of him. According to external historical sources, it was Cyrus who uh, conquered the Babylonian kingdom from uh, Nebonidus, who was Balthazar's father. Um, And as I mentioned previously, it's interesting that there is a kind of weird coincidence that Cyrus the Great, the Persian, or actually the Archimedean king, was the same, about 62 years old when he conquered Babylon, which is the exact age given to Darius the Mede here. Unfortunately, it's clear from the very last verse in the chapter that Darius precedes Cyrus the Persian. Darius the Mede precedes Cyrus the Persian, so they are not one and the same person. Our book essentially implies that there was a short period of median control of Babylon uh, before Cyrus the Great of Persia took uh, took it over. Um, Darius, Darius is a very popular Persian and Median name, and Tanakh in, rec- records two other uh, stories about Darius, and there are two other Dariuses. Um, the first is the one who succeeded Cyrus, and the, the second one is the one who succeeds Ahasuerus, although in actual history, Ahasuerus's kingdom gave way to at Ahasuerus was Xerxes. Xerxes' kingdom gave way to Artaxerxes, 
and uh, Artaxerxes was succeeded by the second Darius. And in fact, history knows four rulers named Darius during the Median and Persian times. However, none matches ours. That is, the history of that we know of external history does not match our history. None the, nonetheless, the setting and the story are clear, and its religious message is clear, so we can continue in, on with the story as is. What is also clear is that the rulers of Media and Persia, both, are far more benign than the rulers of Babylon, of Babylonia. Um, also, uh, keep in mind that the story assumes that we know that in the last chapter, the last verse, Balthazar was killed and the Babylon, Babylonian Empire has fallen and been replaced with a short-lived Median Empire. And Darius the Median, the Mede, took over the kingdom uh, when he was 62 years old. Rashi cites an interesting explanation for why we have to track Darius' age, which is unusual. Um, but as a simple, though, I'll stick to the simple explanation, which is that his advanced age explains why Cyrus and Persia succeeded him so so quickly. Shafar Kadam Daryavesh Vahakim Amalchutala Achash Dar Panaya Meav Esrin Delehevon Bechomachuta. Then Darius found it good to establish 120 satraps throughout the empire, throughout his empire. A satrap is a division of the empire into administrative units, which don't match necessarily the political borders of the provinces of the countries which were conquered by the empire. Uh, if you remember the story of Solomon, he divides Israel in 12 pieces, but the pieces do not match the tribal borders. They match his own sense of how he needed to govern it. The provinces, that is the, the countries that were conquered, were run by governors, or pachot in Aramaic, and they were of the ethnic of the conquered uh, uh, state. They were probably four formerly kings, royalty in the state that was conquered. The satraps uh, were run by the Achashdar Penim, which also translates as satraps. That is, it's a, a name for both the territory, which is administratively divided, as well as the administrator himself. The term uh, satrap, uh, it, it was used both in, it exists in both the Median and the Persian language, although the form that we have here, Achashdar Penim, is closer to the Median form of the word, which fits the setting because this is a median king. It's a, Madai, it's a king of Madai. The importance of all these political details would, will soon be explained. And over these were three sarchim, uh, of whom Daniel was one, whom these satraps, that is the 120 satraps, would bring legal issues to so as not to trouble the king. The word nezek doesn't mean to damage, not it means to trouble, just like it does in the book of Esther, where it says, Velo Shaveh which means it's not worth the trouble of the king, not damage to the king. The title Serech um, matches actually a word that we see from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, where Serech means rules or laws. In fact, the rule book for the Dead Sea Scrolls sect, if you wanted to join the sect or be part of the sect, was called Serech HaYachad, Serech, the rules of the Yachad. Um, so these Sarchim were in charge of the law and each oversaw one third of the satraps. If you remember, Balthazar from the previous chapter promised Daniel that he would be Talte b'malchuta yishlat, a third of the kingdom of ruled over. So one possibility was it meant he would be third in the kingdom, but another possibility was that he would own a third of the kingdom. So apparently what he meant was he would make him one of these one third super satrap guys. 
and that would also indicate that Balthazar had adopted the median administrative structure, which makes sense since he adopted their party culture as well. Edayin Daniel Dila Hava Mitnatsach al Sarchaya, Vaachash Dar Panaya, Kol Kabil di Ruach Yatira Bey, Umalka Asit, Lahaka Mute al Malchuta. Then this Daniel was promoted over the Serechs and the Satraps, all because of his, his exceptional spirit. Uh, whether that indicates a supernatural spirit or just an excellence of work is not really indicated. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The word um, ashit, ashit lehakamute al-kol malchuta is like the word that we have in Tehillim 146, eshtenotav, which is to plan or to uh, to try to put into uh into action. Um, this is just like, of course, the Joseph in the Egypt story. And, and in fact, many, it's not only Joseph who was promoted to second in the land, many such occurrences during the course of our Jewish exile in, uh, in, in the first diaspora, the second diaspora, the first exile, the second exile, uh, to name a few, Joseph, Nehemiah, the Abarvanel as king of uh, Portugal, uh, not king of Portugal, as the vizier of Portugal, Shmuel Hanagid in, in Spain or Al-Andalusia, the Arab Spain, Rahm Emanuel in America. Well, I'm sort of pushing that last one, but you know, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's the exact same thing. And then, following the promotions, uh, the usual thing happens. That is, uh, what generally happens in history when a Jew is promoted to number two is that's when the trouble begins. Verse five. Panaya <laughs> Then the serechs and the satraps search for some excuse, like a scandal, a plot, to find about or by Daniel from the kingdom's perspective. What that means is something that would make the king go against him because it would break the king's laws. But they could find neither excuse nor corruption since he was honest and no mistake or corruption existed with him. Perhaps the word shalu, mistake, is used instead of the word ilah. That is, first it says ilah ushkita, and then it says uh, shalu and shkita. Perhaps the word mistake is used in the second time to show that he, that Daniel was not so naive. That is, he was careful not to make any mistakes which, while innocent in themselves, could be used unjustly against him. Edayin guvraya ilech amrin dilo nehashkach Daniel dina kol ilah lehein hashkach na alohi bidat elohei. Then these men said, since we can't find any excuse against Daniel, let's go something, uh, let's dig up some dirt regarding the rules of his God, that is, the way he does his religion. Now, in chapter 3, in contrast, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself forced everyone to bow down to his statue, which was a representation of himself or of his God or of both. Here there is no such law that Daniel trans, that Daniel need transgress his religion. Um, these plotters therefore need all of their Machiavellianism in order to create a conflict um, between Daniel's religion and the king's law. Also, um, here the motive seems to be politics rather than professional jealousy or religious jealousy in chapter 3. One could even argue that here the satraps are not motivated out of anti-Semitism or, or more accurately anti-Judaism, 
um, but that um, this is just uh, that that the religious aspect is simply just a, an excuse in the very hard and cruel and rather impersonal cutthroat world of politics. However, I think that we will see later that it is anti-Judaism which is lurking in the uh, uh, lurking uh, in on the sidelines as it usually does. Verse seven: Edayin sarchaya va'achash dar panaya ilain hargish malcha v'chein amarin. Then the serechs and the satraps banded together by the king and said to him as follows, May the king live forever. All the satraps, the representatives, the counselors, the governors, and the serechs over the kingdom have all taken counsel with, with one another and decided that we, that to, that it's, it's necessary to establish a law and to enforce a prohibition. To wit, Everyone who will make a petition from any god or man excluding you, the king, for the next 30 days, will be thrown into a lion's pit. Um, I know everybody translates the word gov aryavata as a lion's den, but a gov actually is simply the word for a cistern, a pit, where apparently they would put lions for safekeeping. In contrast with chapter 3, the king is not assuming divinity here. First of all, it's only for three days. First of all, it's not the king's idea. Second of all, it was only for three days. And third of all, if people didn't want to make any supplications, they didn't have to. It was only if they wanted to make a supplication, they would have to go to the king. So no one is being required to bow down for any idol or king. Therefore, our rather reasonable Darius the Mede probably wrote this idea off as uh, a way to express fealty to the new king of the new empire. There was nothing really uh, uh, insidious about it. Uh, I always uh, find it funny that they say, everybody we had a discussion with everybody and we all came up to the same conclusion. It's always easier to push through an idea if you pretend that it's uh, everybody has uh, the same opinion and everybody agrees to something. Ka'an malka tekim esara v'tirshum katava dilo lahashnaya kidat madai ufaras dilo te'dei. Um, at that time, the king enacted the prohibition and inscribed the statute, and as such, it was not eligible uh, for change, as stated in the laws of Persian media that cannot be repealed. Uh, perhaps this double language, lo lahashnaya, not to be uh, changed, and lo day not to be repealed, means that the written laws, not only was the, the written laws of Media and Persia could not be repealed, but that the law, that other laws couldn't be repealed, also couldn't be repealed. Of course, we've seen this uh, in the Book of Esther, once a law is set into motion, is written down, it cannot be uh, withdrawn. Kolkabil dinam malka daryavesh risham katava asara. Immediately after this, King Darius inscribed the statute the statute and the prohibition verse 11 kadi yadadi rishim katava al but when Daniel became aware that this statute was inscribed, he went to his house where he had a window facing Jerusalem in his attic and he bent on his knees three times a day in prayer and praise before his God, 
just as he always did previously. There's some ambiguity in the sentence. It could mean that he always prayed three times a day, but now he did so in his attic in secret. But I, I think that's a misunderstanding of uh, how addicts were and how uh, and, and what's going on here. For instance, we see very much that that uh, the attic is in full public view because everybody sees what he's doing. I think what the verse means is that just like he always paid three times a day in front of his window, in before there was a statute, a prohibition, in spite of the new statute and prohibition, he, prohibition he's going to keep on doing it. In contrast with chapter 3, where the three friends were commanded to bow down before the statue, here Daniel could have just avoided praying. He could have, or he could have done it in his basement, in a secluded location, where he wouldn't look like he was going against the king's law. So the question is, isn't Daniel putting himself in danger for nothing, for no good reason? So Jewish law requires sacrifice. Um, there's the famous big three, uh, uh, killing somebody, um, worshipping uh, idols and adultery that one really has to self-sacrifice rather than transgress. Um but, however, in Jewish law, actually requires self-sacrifice for any commandment uh, of the authorities, of the authority uh, uh, of whatever empire or government that you're under, even if it's the way one ties one's shoelaces, if that law is designed to strip one's Jewish religion away. So perhaps here, Daniel felt that this was the case. And this may be similar to Mordechai's refusal to bow down to Haman, which is not inherently a sin. I could bow down to a human being. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons, or that's the reason, in my opinion, why the rabbis of the Talmud disam- disambiguated the issue with a very clever midrash by Mordechai that Haman was actually wearing an idol on his lapel, and therefore uh, uh, Mordechai couldn't bow down. And that doesn't, the, Mord- the midrash is not trying to tell us that he literally wore a, a, uh, an idol on his lapel. What it's trying to tell us is that Mordechai made a decision that what Haman was doing was setting himself up as a deity, and in the end it would uh, result in the annulment of Jewish law of the Jewish people. And he was right. That was Haman's plan. Uh, getting back to Daniel, uh, unfortunately he gave the plotters the excuse that, the, that uh, they were looking for. Whether what he did was right or wrong, there's no question that he gave them the excuse they were looking for. Verse 12. Then those men banded together and discovered that Daniel was petitioning and asking mercy from his God. That is, he was praying to him in supplication. I'm sorry, did I translate the word uh, uh, to Latin as three days before? That's not correct. It's, it's 30 days. Then they approached before the king and said regarding the king's prohibition, isn't it true that you inscribe that any person who would petition uh, any god or any man excluding you for 30 days, O king, that he would be thrown into the lion's pit? Then the king responded and said, these words are true, which according to the laws of media and Persia cannot be repealed. And now they spring the trap. Bedayin anu ve'amarin kadam malka di Daniel di min bnei galuta di Yehud lo samalach malka te'en va'alesara di rashamta ve'zimnin tlata ve'yoma 
ba'e ba'ute. Then they responded and said before the king that Daniel, who was from the exile of Judea, did not give due the king his due, and that the king's prohibition, nor did he follow the king's prohibition that you inscribed, and he has petitioned three times a day. They don't say who he petitioned, they just say he has petitioned three times a day. See, what we have now is the lurking anti-Judaism rears its ugly head. That is, why else mention that he's a Jew? He's the chief magistrate. Everybody knows who he is. If he doesn't follow the law, he gets punished. But what they're doing is they say, because he's a Judean, because he's of the Jew- Judean exiles, that's why he slights the king, because they're all a bunch of fifth columnists. In verse 15, Darius' behavior very much contrasts with Nebuchadnezzar's response in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar was really upset with the three companions' lack of compliance, and then he was really angry when they made a speech about how they would refuse to bow down to any other god rather than the god in heaven. Here, Darius is not upset at Daniel at, at all. In fact, he tries to get Daniel off the hook. Then, when the king heard these words, he was very troubled. So he focused on saving him, and even into sundown, he tried to rescue him. The word Baal here seems to uh, be a switch for the word lave, bet lamed rather than lamed bet, which means heart, or actually mind, since the heart was considered to be the center of thought and reasoning. The word mishtadar seems to be an alternate form of mishtadel, to attempt or to try, with a switch for the liquid resh and the liquid consonants resh for the liquid consonant lamed. There are four consonants, resh, lamed, mem, and nun, called lamnar, or luminary consonants, which are vowel-like. You could stretch them out. Mm. So all of those are sometimes swapped for each other in words. Bedayin guvraya ilain hirgishu al-malka ve'amarin le'malka da malka didat l'madayu paras dichol esar v'kiyam di malka yehakem lo lahashnaya then, having seen that the king was looking for a way out, they gathered in on him and said to the king, the king knows that the laws of Madai and Paras that is that any prohibition or ruling that the king enacts cannot be repealed. Bedayin malka amar v'hayitiv l'daniel uramol l'guba di'ar yivata ane malka v'amar l'daniel elahach di'ant palach le'bitadira hu yeshei zivinach. Then the king commanded that Daniel be brought and thrown into the lion's pit. And the king responded and said to Daniel, the God that you worship so consistently to, he should save you. Besides the contrast with Nebuchadnezzar's scoffing that their God would not be able to save them from him, I think the critical issue here is the emphasis on the word tadira, which means consistently. The message from the author through the mouth of Darius the Mede is that the merit that that, that, that gets Daniel to deserve his salvation is his consistency. The fact that he prayed every day, three times a day, every day of the week, including extras probably, Daniel was consistent. That consistent relationship to God is what Darius and what the author feels deserves a, a, a consistent response from God. And Darius wants this to happen. He feels that it's the right thing to do. He really empathizes and sympathizes. Verse 18. 
Sivu B'Daniel. And they brought a single boulder and it was placed on the mouth of the pit. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his chiefs. So the punishment would not be changed against Daniel. Note the word uh, Tsevu is interesting here. It means desire or to want. And we've had it before in this book in that form. But here it means that the consequential or the punishment uh, should not change. In Hebrew, it matches the word Chefetz, not as it's used in earlier books in Tanakh, but as it's used in the book of Kohelet. Al-Titmala um, Chefetz. Uh, Don't worry when God will show up and uh, make sure justice is served. Um, note also that this verse sort of builds the reason or foundation for the death that will come upon these plotters. Uh, by using this double signet methodology, what essentially they're implying to the king is that his own seal itself is insufficient, lest he sneak back in the middle of the night, rescue Daniel, and then reseal with his own signet, so they made sure that their signet was on the seal as well. That's a dangerous game to play against any king, as, and as we will see, their behavior will cost them their lives. In contrast with uh, with, with uh, chapter 3, Daniel is completely silent about his fate. The, the other three, Hanania, Mishael, they really cry out to Nebuchadnezzar letting him know that they are willing to sacrifice themselves even if God won't save them. Daniel, at this point, doesn't say a word. And maybe that's because his active prayer which went against the law, is statement enough. And this really makes the two stories stories not only contrasting, but complementary. The three friends were asked to do something actively to reject their God and their religion, to bow down to the statue. In contrast, Daniel is asked to passively reject his religion. Uh, that is, he's asked that if he needs to bow down, he needs to bow down before the king. And what he does instead is he publicly follows his religion in defiance rather than trying to find a work away around it. There's a story in the Talmud, and it's based on a similar story. The Talmud is in Roman times, and it's based on a similar story from the book of two Maccabees, which is in the Greek times, which has an emperor demanding that seven brothers in turn bow down to the king. And each one refuses. The first six refuse and are killed in turn. So when the king gets to this little young kid, the youngest of them all, he doesn't want him killed. So he throws a coin with his image on the ground, the king does, and begs that the kid just bow down and pick it up for him so that on one hand the kid won't uh, transgress um, the law, but to save face it will appear to everybody else that he is transgressing the law, that he is bowing down to the king. But the boy refuses to play a game where, oh, he doesn't really have to sin, but uh, everybody knows that he's really sinning. Um, he refuses to play that game, and he is put to death as well. I think there's a similarity to our story here. After this, the king uh, went to his palace and went to bed fasting. Um, and Dachavim were not brought to him. I'll translate Dachavim in a second. And his sleep eluded him. The expression Bat Tevat is found... Uh, in the Talmud. Even Ezra says that tevat uh, means to fast or to uh, kind of afflict oneself in Arabic. And the word bat perhaps comes from the idea of a house, like going to sleep in one's house or one's bed. The word dachavan is, is unknown. It's the only time it shows up. But from context, the various commentators offer a table of food, singers and dancers, and concubines. I like the last one because we can assume a switch between the nun and the avav, which happens between Semitic languages and the Akkadian language. And last chapter, we saw the word chenat for concubines. 
concubine, so here have the, we have the word cheva, which I think means concubine as well. Um, Darius's concern for Daniel, um, or perhaps his concern about the miscarriage of justice, is very real and heartfelt, again, in contrast to what we saw in Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. Be'dayim malka bishpar para yikum b'nagdaha then in the morning, the king got up at first light and went to the lion's pit in hurried distress. As he approached the pit, he yelled out to Daniel in a sorrowful voice and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the God that you worship so consistently, was he able to save you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. Very strange that the word with him as opposed to le. But in any event, he says, long live the king. Elahi, well, it really means let the king live forever. Elai shalach malache usagar pumar yevata velo chabaluni kolkabil dikadamohi zachu hishtakachali vaafkadamach malka chabula lo update. My God sent an angel who closed the mouth of the lion and I was undamaged because he, that is God, found in me merit before him. And so to you, O king, I have done no damage. That is, I didn't do any damage to God, no sins, and I didn't do any damage to you. Daniel probably didn't say this before he was thrown into the pit because the verdict had to be carried out no matter what. So why bother saying it? But now that it's done and Daniel survived, he's telling the king that the law has nothing to do with loyalty of the throne and his trans. Transgressing the law has nothing to do with his disloyalty to the throne. Daniel may also be demonstrating to the king the idea of measure versus measure and sin and punishment. If I'm not Mechabel, if I don't do damage, that means that God will not damage. God does no damage. Verse 24. Then the king was overcome with a great feeling. This is the exact opposite of the expression we had before, sagi be'esh alohi. Here we have sagi te'ev from the word tov alohi. And he commanded that Daniel be raised out of the pit. And Daniel was lifted out of the pit from the pit. And no damage could be found on him because of his reliability, his consistency, or because of his belief towards God. Note the word liot amen means emunah, to believe in something, but also to be consistent and reliable towards something. Uh, the author's religious lesson, I think, is very clear to the Jews in exile. With Jerusalem available only as a compass point, only as a place where you can peer out your window to get a direction of, it is only religious consistency that will uh, allow survival of the Jewish people in exile. And now we see what happens to people who push kings into corners. And 
And the king commanded uh, to bring these men that slandered, literally that took a bite out of the flesh of Daniel. I don't think that means all 123 of them, the 120 satraps and the three seraphs. It just means whichever ones came before him to do this. And he, the king, had them thrown along with their children and their wives into the lion's pit. And they didn't even reach the ground before the lions were all over them. And they splintered, that is, the lions splintered all of their bones. The book apparently takes no issue, has no problem with the punishing of the families alongside the plotter. So I'll leave that as a Persian peculiarity. Um, I know some of you are saying, what about Achan's family in the book of Joshua? Uh, weren't they king- killed as well? But the rabbis say no. And I think a careful read of the text of Joshua will show that only Achan was actually killed. In verse 26, Darius the Mede writes a very impressive letter, which we must also contrast with Nebuchadnezzar's letter to the miraculous salvation that he saw in chapter 3. Uh, then Darius the king wrote to all of his nations, peoples, and language groups living throughout the land, may great peace be unto you. I have enacted a law that everyone who falls under the control of my empire must quake and be in fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God. He endures forever and his kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will last forever. He saves and rescues and makes signs. He does signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth as demonstrated by his saving of Daniel from the hands of the lions. The word hands in hands of the lions seems a little bit weird here. Uh, unless he's hinting that the conspirators were lions as well, which I think is what he's saying. Um, this is far more than Nebuchadnezzar's law that none could blaspheme the God of the Judeans. Here he says that they actually have to recognize him and be awe uh, 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 of him. Finally, Daniel This Daniel was promoted. Remember, the plan promotion is what set all of this mess in, in motion in the first place. So the promotion comes through, and he was promoted in the government of Darius and continued on through the government of Koresh the Persian or Cyrus the Great of Persia. This ends the historical half of the book of Daniel. The apocalypse, the apocalyptic half, begins with chapter 7.